I'll tell you what I want to do. Um, we're, gonna, we're actually officially supposed to start in five minutes, but can I at least introduce myself to you and get you going on an exercise? We kind of got a lot of territory to cover, and I really want your input as well, but I want to make sure I teach you some things. If you can just shut that door almost all the way. So my name is Pastor Al Yano. If you don't know me, I'm the uh, church multiplication director for the Ohio Ministry Network, which means my job is to help plant churches all throughout the state, which I love to do. I'm a church planter. Uh, my wife and I have done uh, urban ministry, inner city ministry for 26 years. Uh, and uh, we've also done kids ministry and nonprofit ministry and community development. So a lot of that type of stuff. That's why it all interweaves into our theme today. If you want any information about the Church Multiplication Network, just our process and different resources that we have, in planting churches, grab one of these. We also have a table out there with free candy, hallelujah, and free pens. And, and I got a business card here if you want to call me. I'm signing up new friends. I don't, you know, I need friends. So there you go. Also, throughout, throughout our time today, I'm going to uh, just put a couple books before you. And these going to be, we're going to give these away. Anthony's going to help me. We'll give them away kind of during the session, but. This pertains to some of the stuff we're talking about. The first book is Neighborliness by Dr. David Dokuson. And uh, he just writes about, you know, this collaborative effort when the church becomes a true neighbor to their community. And they don't just have a church in a community, but they become a neighbor in the community. How they address uh, biblical justice issues and the gospel in those communities. This is really good roadmap. Uh, if you want to do gospel ministry. So Anthony will give this away. A anybody in this room uh, want this book? Raise your hand. I'll, I'll have to, if there's more than one, I'll have to, because uh, I have two. So let me give you one. And so she put her hand up first. I'm sorry. I'm going to give you one right here. All right. Then Anthony, I'll give you these other two. The other one is The Speed of Unity by Rob Ketterling. And he wrote this one this year in the midst of the pandemic. And just understanding that the church is God's greatest tool to show the world how to walk in a spirit of unity. And when we walk in unity behind and in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then God accelerates that unity to bring about huge results. So if, you, if you're interested in that book, who's interested in this book if there's more than one? All right, here's my, here's my test. Whose birthday is as close to today as possible? March. February, May, September, so we'll have to go, we'll go with February, February and March. <laughs> and this book here is, uh, yeah, Many Colors, Your Church Has a Culture, and it's written by uh, Sung Chan Ra. Uh, it's about having a multicultural church and understanding that a multicultural church is not about having people from different cultures in your church. It means they have a voice. It means you care about their world. It means you care, in, you know, you care to embrace the cultures. You embrace diversity and you celebrate it. And so, all right, there we got some hands up now. All right, should I do the birthday? Which which should I do now? Let's go with. Oh, Paris gave me a good one. What was it? Huh? Oh, who has the most kids? How many kids you got? Three, four. Including the baby? Oh, man. Anybody got more than four? Okay, we're going to give this to you. All right, so there's some prizes. Now, I, I want to start this session, like I said, we're doing a, just a little bit of a, um, a poll with you guys. If you didn't get this paper, and if you can make sure people get it like Chuck there. And all I want you to do, this is an exercise. Now, look, I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable because when you talk about the issues that we got to talk about, Ministry in the midst of cultural crisis. We have to be willing to get into the mess of the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's never comfortable. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable. And I probably I won't try to make you mad. But just take that little exercise at the top of your paper. No right or wrong answer. You know, just kind of rate the issues of importance. Like in your, in your mindset, in your passions. Kind of rate those things one to eight. 
and uh, and then we're going to get started in just a minute as you do that. All right. I know it's challenging. All right, everybody got a paper? Thanks, bud. I know. Don't be cheating. And remember the <laughs> the only rules I gave you was right, you know, value these things from one to eight. That's the only rule. So however you want to interpret that is up to you. But uh Yes. Neighborliness, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in May, we have an urban ministries cohort that meets on Zoom. Yes. Uh, David Dukasen is actually, I always say his name wrong. Hey, I don't know. Dukasen or Dukasen, one or two. Dukusen, he'll explain it on that call. He's going to be live with us on that one. We're interviewing him, talking about his book and some of the stuff he mentions in there. So if you're interested in that, uh, hit me up before you leave. Give me your email address. Yeah. We'll get you in there. Yeah, I probably should have put a sign-up thing. Um, yeah, or maybe give them your text or something like that. Here, take a card if you're interested. Then you can hit me up. So if you're interested in that um, cohort that we're going to do with J David Dokuson. All right, so let me ask you this question. Who is brave enough to share your answers in this room? <laughs> okay. Tiffany, and then I'll go to you next. All right? Go ahead. Very good. Very good. And if, if you got to pull down your mask to talk, I'm cool with that. And what's your name? Jill, what did you do? Okay. All right. You want to give any commentary at all? Okay, that's all right. All right, right, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anyone else want to share? Who cheated? Bob, did you cheat? I put them all one. I bet you did. Go ahead, Kyle. Thank you. What was your one again? Abortion. Abortion. Okay. So let me ask you a question. How many struggled with this thing? Like this bothered me. I didn't want to do this. <laughs> you felt that tension, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I'm going to show you a slide in a couple of minutes to show you that pastors are under that tension all the time. You know, where, where do I, where do I go with this? How about how, how many of you, well, tell me why you found it hard. Who will volunteer and say, I felt a tension in doing this, and, and here's why. Go ahead, Mike. I just think, like somebody has said, that, man, they should all be ones. Or, and, and they should. They should all be ones. Like, we should care about all of these things. Like, yeah. so many people that we're trying to reach, that God is trying to reach, you meet eight different people, they have eight different number ones. Yeah, right. So, and and you're, he's leaning into where we're going with this whole thing. When it comes to uh, bringing the gospel in the midst of a culture in crisis, 
we tend, we human beings tend to view the culture through the lens of our experience. And that's kind of what you were alluding to and, and what we're around the most. And I think God has the highest view of this whole thing. And, and really that was kind of a setup. It was really a setup because if, if we did, good job, Bob. If, if we did ask God, he would have circled the whole thing and put a one, not one for each, but a one over the whole thing. Because the whole thing is about life. And God is the creator of life. Now, Dr. Tony Evans would say it this way. He, when you start with the image of God, you define life the way that God defines it. God believes in whole life insurance, not term life insurance. That means life inside the womb and life outside the womb. Life is from womb to tomb and beyond. Because God cares about life. So the, the tension is, okay, how do we deal then with some of these cultural issues that are going on in the world? How are we Christians supposed to approach it? And let me just hit a little bit of this. Um, when's this class supposed to end, by the way? 11.15, okay. I got a lot of, uh, this is Barnard research that he did, and he asked pastors the question, do you feel pressured or limited in speaking out? So when I use the word limited, I'm talking about pastors feeling like if they speak out on an issue, someone's going to get offended. That's limited, okay? When I use the word pressure, I'm talking about pastors who feel like if I don't speak out on something, somebody's going to be offended. Could you imagine what it's like being a pastor? So 69% said, 64% said, I'm going to offend somebody if I do speak. And 69% said, I'm going to offend somebody if I don't speak. So, you know, and, and these are the issues that uh, they say, do you feel limited or pressured about? The main one is, is the homosexuality, uh, LGBTQ, whatever. And, uh, and then you can see how it goes down. Now, let's move on to this one. 90% of pastors feel like it's a major part of their role to help Christians have biblical beliefs about specific social issues. Okay, 90% of them say that. But look at this. How much do you feel you have with your, how much influence do you feel you have with your congregation? So you know, 90% say that they should speak about it. Only 31% say they have a lot of influence and 60% say they have some. So it's like, no matter what I say, uh, I don't know how much influence I'm going to have anyways. How well equipped is your congregation for conversations on these topics? 7% said very well. 55% said somewhat. It's a very interesting statistic. Now, thi now, this is one. Let me just take one social issue. Let's talk about ethnicity in America. If you can't see that, let me unpack it for you. So the question was asked. This is, I just want you to see the gap in American culture. The gap among Christians, how we have a gap with general Americans, and then we have a gap racially in our nation. So they asked, do you think our country has a race problem? Now, in, in two, let's just concentrate on black and white. So in 2019, the darker one represents all Americans. So 46% of all Americans in 2019 said we have a race problem. Only 40% of white Christians said that. There's a gap. Now, in 2019, 72% of, uh, of black Christians said yes, 54% of Hispanic. Now, you would think 2020 would open our eyes a little bit, right? <laughs> All the stuff that went, 2020, it's, the gap gets bigger. 33% of white adults say we have a race problem that are Christians. I'm just telling you from Barna's poll. 81% of black Christian adults say we have a race problem. And 55% of Hispanic. We got a gap just on that one issue. In the church. Now, if we as the church can't get this thing, how are we going to demonstrate to the world? So we're going to talk about how do we approach these issues through the lens of the gospel. And, and you nailed it. So we'll, we're going to be all over your comment of what you said. Uh, the problem here is these people are answering the question based upon their own world. I looked at my wife and I said, do you believe these statistics? And Paris looked over at me and said, that's because there's a lot of people who said, if it doesn't affect me, it's not a problem. 
And then there's a lot of people who said it affects me every day. It is a problem. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, and I'll just go there with this, like if it affects you, then it affects me. If it's a problem for you, it's a problem for me. Are you feeling me on this thing? Let's not make this thing so complicated. Let's just be for real how to do this gospel. That's how you do the gospel. Okay, so uh, this is very interesting. This is a generational thing about sharing your testimony. So the question was asked, uh, how, how strong do you feel about Christians sharing their testimony with the purpose of trying to convert people? Um, and 73% of millennials said, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my testimony. But 47% of them said it's wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes of trying that they'll share your faith. Why are millennials saying that? Because 27% of my generation, I'm a Gen X. Don't even try to judge me. <laughs> so there's a gap here. And, and so we're going to tie two things. The gap here when they went on and, and did that study and talked deeper is the gap was the millennial generation was viewing evangelism through the lens of the boomer culture. So when they thought evangelism, they thought of people standing on the street corner preaching at people, judging people, wearing signs, you're going to hell if you are, you know. They're thinking of this old school, not old school, but like an old generational approach to evangelism that's very cold, not relational. Because millennials are very relational. So it's not that they don't want to share their faith. They're 73% confident that they can do it. It's that they don't want to force their faith. So this is, this is stuff that we're facing a cultural crisis. Our culture's changing ethnically. It's changing racially. It's changing politically. It's changing generationally. And how do we live out the gospel in the midst of that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move um, kind of quick through some slides. Hopefully most of those notes are in your, in your thing there. But the first thing is let's define culture before we can go any further. And so there's a definition of culture up there, and it basically says culture is a system of beliefs, values, and assumptions about life that guides your behavior and are shared by a group of people. So when we talk about culture today, we're talking about that definition. That came from the Peace Corps. And so I pulled a couple takeaways out of that. Number one, culture is learned. We learn culture. We're not born with it. All right. Culture is also shared. Culture is integrated. It has many parts to it, many moving parts. And culture is dynamic. See, I love having music when I'm speaking behind me. <laughs> I thought it would be more like church music, though. Oh, okay. Matthew West. Okay. Um, so culture uh, influences the way that we approach life, okay? Now, somebody, uh, one, a great uh, philosopher, uh, his name was theologian Richard Nerber, wrote a book called Christ and Culture way back in the day. And what he tried to do is kind of lay out this spectrum of how Christians interact with culture. I, I'm not saying this is the right way. I'm just giving you his spectrum real quick. So the first one is an extreme on the stream one end, the other... The second one is on the extreme other end, and the next three are in between. But he talks about Christ against culture. Here's what he says. Christ against culture is the view that all expressions of culture are outside the church and are considered corrupted by sin and highly suspicious. And, and that's kind of when we live in this life that we're supposed to be separate from the world. Um, but separation from the world is not the way Jesus lived with his lifestyle. It's the way he lived with his approach. OK, so he he was separate from the world because he was God. He was a, a man of God, but he wasn't separate from the world in his proximity. He had to interact with the world. So Christ of culture is the opposite end where you get all cultural expressions are seen as a good thing. And there is no conflict between culture and truth. So it's almost like we should receive everybody. Jesus received everybody. Um, and so that mentality gets dangerous. All right, it gets dangerous because it's not anchored in truth. So we're going we're gonna to get to that uh, cross uh, uh, synergy of truth and love in just a minute. Third one is Christ above culture. Culture and cultural expressions can be seen as good as long as they're submitted to the lordship of Jesus and interpreted through his truth. 
So culture is perfected in Christ. That's, that's another viewpoint. Number four, a, th- a fourth one is culture and Christ in paradox, which says human culture is good, but it has been tainted by sin. And as a result, there's a tension in the relationship between Christians and the culture that they're in. And then the fifth one is kind of the one that um, most people uh, grab a hold of, Christ the transformer of culture. Culture was originally good, but corrupted by the fall. Christ came to redeem people and redeem culture. I love that phrase. Our role is to help transform people and transform culture. So, I, you know, I don't think the answer is to choose one of these things. I think really the right combination, three, four, and five, are really kind of the, what, what swallows the whole thing. But let's just lock in on, you know, what is our role? And I, I believe that our role as believers... Um, is to view the culture through the lens of the gospel rather than viewing the gospel through the lens of the culture. See, when you view the gospel through the lens of the culture, you strive to make the gospel relevant. And so you adjust it to fit the culture. The result is tainted truth that conforms people to culture. But when you view the culture through the lens of the gospel, you strive to help the culture experience truth, grace, and love. And the result is empowered truth that transforms people and culture. So that's what we're going to unpack right now. Um, how do we view the culture through the lens of the gospel? Let's take a look at that. And I got to, what did I say, 1115? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, I want to start by asking you this question. What kind of culture was Jesus born into? <laughs> what kind of dynamics do you, when you think about the life of Jesus, what, what was going on in the culture at that time? Raise your hand if you can give me some input. Any Bible scholars? Yes. It was a Jewish culture. It was a temple life, you know, around the temple. And, and so there was a lot of religion. A lot of religion going on. Yeah. But yet the Jews... We're being oppressed by the Romans. My relatives, and I'm sorry about that. People love to remind me that because I'm Italian, we're responsible for crucifying Jesus. I mean, that hurts. But uh, so you got this tension. You got this religious tension going on, right? And the Jews' culture was very separate. I mean, they, they made, they stayed separate from the Romans. Like you weren't even allowed to eat in a Gentile's home, right? So they were like separate. Then you have this oppressive culture going on, right? The Romans, they were corrupt to the bone. And, you know, and, and it wasn't just oppressive racially, although they, the Jews had no rights. They were not treated with dignity. They were not valued. They didn't, you know, they were seen as second-class people. Um, but not only that, you had heavy taxation. So you had this heavy governmental corrupting rule. Some people say almost up to 50% of their livelihood from farming had to be given to the Roman government. It was corrupt and it was unjust because like if you were a Jew and you committed a crime, you, the, the punishment never met the crime. It was always way above. You know, but if you were a Roman, you can get away with some things. Like even Paul used that a couple times, right? <laughs> Sound familiar? And this is a culture and, and not, we didn't even say how women were devalued, right? Women were devalued. Kids were devalued. They didn't really count in the census. And, and so you had this racism. You had classism. Herod was a thug. I mean, he'd kill, he, he tried to kill every firstborn child who's committed genocide. Let's remove the Jews from the planet. We've heard a lot of that dialogue going on. So it was a tense culture that Jesus was born into. But the Bible says just at just the right time, Christ came. Wow. I don't know. When I think of the strategy and the game plan, I am so glad that God did not come to me and said, hey, help me do some strategic planning on how to send Jesus into the world and what's the best timing. Because I would have said right after, honestly, right after the Babylonian and Assyrian, you know, when they started sending them back to rebuild Israel, I would have said, that's the perfect time right there. We got them now. They're soft. But man, sending Jesus in the middle of that tension? Yeah, that was the perfect time, God said. So let's, let's do some things. Let's unpack the gospel. All right, now, 
Let's go to, um, we're going to unpack the gospel. Let's go to um, John 3.16. Hopefully you got it memorized. That's the gospel, isn't it? Let's break down John 3.16. And what we're going to do is we're going to view the culture in five ways through the lens of John 3.16. And so let's start with the phrase, uh, God so loved, agape, the principle of agape. Gospel ministry must begin end and be saturated with love people cannot understand the gospel unless they truly experience god's love not love if not love because of but unconditional agape love so you can see when you start with the culture and you don't start with love but you start with truth are you hearing me so this there's this synergizing of the great commandment and the great commission the great commission being truth go ye into all the world and preach the gospel the great commandment being love if you go into all the world and you preach truth but you do not have love you become a pharisee right but if you go into all the world and you preach love but you don't have truth uh you become you know relativism <laughs> you know pluralism there's many ways to god You've got to have the, the, the combination of both, but you can't start with truth, especially in this culture that we're in. You've got to start with love. So Christians who are really, say you, on number one on your paper, you put, um, say you put, uh, uh, what do you call it, marriage, you know, biblical marriage. You can't start conversation with homosexuals with you're wrong. <laughs> you don't start that conversation that way. You start that conversation with what is true love? And I want to affirm that I love you and I care about you. And this whole conversation is wrapped around that. Now, where can we go from there? Let me tell you my story. You tell me your story. Let me get to know you. you got to start with love. Does that make sense? Jesus always led with love. You guys are Bible scholars. I mean, what did he do? Like Zacchaeus up in the tree. I mean, everybody else was like, don't you go near him. We hate him. He's evil. He's an enemy of the... Of, of the Jewish people. Jesus says, I'm eating at your house. I'm starting with love. Right? What did he do with the Samaritan woman? Started with love. He didn't call her names. He unpacked her story of pain. He could have called her names, though. But he instead, he unpacked her story. Love, 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 love. If we can't start with love, uh, then we're not going to get the gospel across to people. And just think about how did John become the apostle of love? Because we all know that if you study John's life, you know, there was a time where he was ready to rain down fire from heaven. Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heaven on these people? Jesus taught him how to be the, gospel, the, uh, the apostle of love. He laid on Jesus' breast, which I believe is symbolic. He leaned on God's heart. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Paul's testimony. Here's a guy who was killing Jews. He was killing Christians. He was murdering them. All of a sudden, he writes the greatest chapter of the Bible, the chapter of love. How does that happen? Because they experienced God's love. And so, how, does that, how do you unpack that in this culture? Let me, let me just, I'll just share with you a personal story, and we'll move on to the, the second one. So, how many of you remember uh, the day during covid um, I think it was in May, I can't remember what, when uh, th there had be, been another um, police shooting of a person of color who was unarmed and uh, there was no explanation for what went on and, this, and the nation blew up. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, well, here in Columbus, uh, you know, our downtown area got destroyed. I mean, they were throwing rocks at buildings and there was fires and the, and the police were out there with their riot gear and it just seemed crazy. Well. We had planned that, that day to go on a March for Jesus walk because it was actually the day before March for Jesus. So the people who organized March for Jesus said, get small groups, go on a prayer walk. So we got together a small group of a couple people from around the area. We had, uh, this is Chad and Cherish, and this is a brother who's involved in church planting in Toledo. We had African-American young lady who's a police officer with us and her family who are uh, African-American pastors from Toledo and we walked the streets of Columbus forgot that there were riots going on downtown but what we witnessed were not riots I'll be honest with you 
That may have happened in the evening. I'm not going to argue that. All I'm saying is when I started walking those streets, we saw more white people than I saw people of color. I saw more families than I saw crazy young people. I saw my own eyes. And they were walking the streets peacefully, and they were protesting. We were walking the streets, and we were praying. And so the protesters and the prayers connected. We were right in front of the state house. Over here, they were on with their horns, and they were quoting all kinds of things. We started praying. First, we prayed for the police officers, and we went straight up to them, and they let us pray over them. It was really cool because a young African-American lady prayed for the police officers. That was powerful. It was a powerful moment. And, and, uh, and then we went in the middle of the crowd, and we just stood off to the side and started praying. But what happened was, as we were praying, people that were walking through the uh, protest started coming over to our circle. And they were standing around us, staring at us. I had my eyes open. And all of a sudden, they started joining us. See these three? There's three ladies back here. They started praying with us. So I looked up when we got done praying. I said, well, wh I said, what brought you down here? And they started saying, well, we've experienced racism in our lives. And, you know, as a teenager growing up in my city, I experienced, I experienced it at school. And I'm, I just don't know what to do with it anymore. And she just started crying. And so we just put our arms around her and says, well, we just, I want to tell you I'm sorry. I hugged her and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you experienced. I'm sorry for your pain. Can we pray for you? Please pray for me. We led those three ladies to Christ right there. In the, there they are. We led them to Christ. And uh, God used that moment. You say, well, but, the, but the riots were this and, and Black Lives Matter this and yeah, but the white people that and they don't see any. You could argue all that stuff. The gospel says lead with love. Period. So if a teenager needs me to say, your life matters, then I'll say black lives matter. Your life matters. I don't, I'm not supporting an organization. I'm speaking into the spirit of somebody. Are you hearing me? Lead with love. Lead with love. Number two, for God so loved the world. Everybody say the world. The world. Principle of universal. That means the gospel is about intentionally reaching everyone. Everyone. So the question should be, who's missing? <laughs> who needs to be here that's not here? Not who doesn't fit in. But who's missing? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn to verses 12 to 13, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. They're having a dinner party. And the Pharisee invited all the who's who of the city to the dinner. And, and Jesus uses it as a teaching moment about whosoever. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your neighbors. Some of you say, yeah, I, I agree. Don't do that. It could be a disaster. <laughs> You've been to some of my family meals. You may agree with that. If you do, they might invite you back so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, and you will be blessed. Come on now. Now, I've got to give a little commentary on this. I, I don't have a lot of time, but Jesus wasn't saying you invite them as a project. He says, you invite them to the table yeah. as a special guest. Yeah. This isn't a feeding program. He's talking about a love feast. This is about agape. This is about koinonia. Yeah. So the, the, the point is not just to meet needs, but to raise the dignity of people. One of the greatest challenges, if you ever work with the poor and the homeless, which I've worked with them for many, many years, is, is a dignity issue. <laughs> they need to know that they have value and they can contribute. So, like, if you're going to do a meal for them or a giveaway for them, include them as part of the solution and not just a client. Yeah, right. so help them to own that thing. Yeah. Um, 
in, in our city, and I, I can't get into this a lot, but in our city, um, when I was living in Youngstown, we were having, you know, we, we suffered all the repercussions of racism, and every time there was a crazy event that went on, it got tenser and tenser. But we put a coalition of people together in our city that involved church people of many different ethnicities, uh, city leaders, including the mayor and the police chief and the, and the judges and everybody in that system, as well as community organizations and neighboring organizations. And we put together what we called um, dinner, dinner parties. And we assigned people all over the city to be a part of dinner parties all around the city. And you had to go to someone's house with groups of people you did not know were from other sides of town, other cultures, other ethnicities, and other classes. So people were eating in my house with people that were living in the projects and the mayor of the city was at my house. <laughs> and they were eating at the same table. And it was really cool because the mayor was saying, I care about you with his questions. Tell me your story. I want to know what I don't know. The police chief was sitting in the house uh, uh, of some of our leadership, you know, a uh, Spanish couple sitting in their house saying, tell me what I don't know, what I need to know. And it's about, you know, intentionally making sure that you're reaching everyone. Amen. That's, that was Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. Right. Don't call unclean what I've made clean. The Jews could not get that. You do not have dinner with non-Jews. And Jesus had to send persecution to get them to understand what they were called to the world. So that's a very important lesson. So that's principle number two. Principle number three is grace. Oh, man, this is good. That he gave his one and only son. The reason I say that grace is because grace is a person, not an action. Hello. Grace is a person, not an action. Gospel ministry is about helping people experience the gift of God's grace through Christ. I'm going to use a phrase that I, I, I guess has become popular, but I'm going to use it for effect. In the midst of the cancel culture, there are desperate people who need to experience God's grace. Let the world cancel people. God never canceled anyone. Anyone. We shouldn't do the same. Each of you, now, this is a great text, and I, I'm putting it from the New Living's translation, 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use the gift that you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. I love that. Stewards of God's grace in various forms. The gospel is about grace. So I got an incredible video I want to show you. <laughs> I got to set the story up. And this is a little bit of a test, and you got to be honest. How many of you, raise your hand if you know this, have ever heard the name Botham Jean? Botham Jean, go ahead, put your hand up if you have. Okay, very few. See how quick these incidents go away? So Botham Jean was a, a CPA accountant, African-American young man who was in his apartment last year. I think it was last year or two years ago. He was watching TV two years ago, eating ice cream. Yep. Young uh, white police officer coming off of work went to the wrong floor, wrong apartment, walked in and thought that she was being robbed, pulled her gun out and shot him. Remember? And he died. The world went crazy. All right. Everybody wanted justice. Yeah. I mean, justice is justice. All right. Everybody wanted justice. He was unarmed. He had no criminal record. He didn't pose a threat she felt threatened she felt justified I'm not here to judge it all I know is it was not good the situation I will tell you this that's Amber so she's at the trial she's been convicted they give Botham's family opportunity to share his brother gets up try to find his name Brant Jean gets up and extends grace he looks at her and says, I love you. I not only forgive you, but I love you. I'm not happy about what happened, but you need to understand before you go to jail that I forgive you. Now, what took place next made the world mad 
and part of the world really excited because the judge did something that you would never think the judge would do. Let, let me, can I play this for you? Sure. I'm going to do it anyways, but I'm going to play. <laughs> is spending her first night in her new prison unit. This is her new mugshot from the Gatesville prison. Incident we're hearing from the trial judge who surprised us all with this moment in court. You know, Judge Jamie Gibbs, she took a lot of heat for that rally. Yeah, she talked about Rebecca Lopez, why she felt it was important. Can I give her a hug, please? It's the moment that for a few seconds seemed to bring the world together and embrace. Both of John's brothers, Brad, had asked Judge Tammy Kemp if he could hug Amber Geiger, his brother's killer. And I was wanting to say no, but I couldn't. And then when he said the second please, I just felt like I could not deny him this. I thought it would be cathartic for him. I hoped it would be helpful for Ms. Geiger. Then Judge Kent stepped off the bench to consult both of John's family. And I told them that I was happy to have learned about their son because he seemed to be an amazing individual. She says she looked around the courtroom and saw black and brown on one side and white on the other. So she turned to Geiger, not wanting her to feel neglected. And I just simply said to her, uh, Brant John has forgiven you. Please forgive yourself. She says Geiger <laughs> asked her if she That's thought powerful. her life could still have purpose. And she asked me, did I think God would forgive her? And I said, yes, he will. And she said, well, I don't have a Bible. I don't own a Bible. And I don't know where to start. And that's when I said to her, I will get you a Bible. So she went to her chambers, got her Bible, and gave it to Geiger. That. She told her to turn to John 3.16, and they read the Bible together. She says Geiger asked her for a hug, not once, but twice. When I looked at her and saw how she was hurting, of course I agreed to give her a hug. And so we did. Judge Kemp repeatedly wiped away tears as she recounted those moments. She says she's confused that some people would criticize her for having this human moment. And I did feel led to give her a Bible because I did not want her to go back over to the jail and to become bitter and to not allow the seed that was planted not to be nurtured and brought to fruition. She says despite the fact that some people thought she overstepped her role as a judge, she says she would do the same thing again. In Dallas, I'm Rebecca Lopez. That's just one snapshot of grace. That's what I'm talking about. Now, let me ask you in this room, how many of you actually saw that story on the news? Very few. See, I, very few. Why is that? Yeah, the news doesn't want, the news wants polarization. They want to stir the pot because then they can control the narrative and have the power. I'm not criticizing the news, but I'm just saying don't get your story from people who don't have God's glory. Oh, that was good. Chuck, that's good. You can write that down. Take that. But that's powerful. That's just powerful. And that's the, it, that is the anointing that we have as a church in our nation. To rewrite the narrative. Rather than play into the narrative, rewrite the narrative. I'm telling you, and I, I got to watch what I say because I'll get in trouble, but I've tried, and you guys are really receiving what I'm saying, but I've tried to tell this story to many pastors about grace and, and, and when they approached the politics of this season, I was like, stop preaching politics from your pulpit. Preach yeah. the gospel. And, and I can't tell you the heat I got over that. <laughs> I mean, I got the heat. Because we don't understand. We keep viewing the culture. We keep viewing the gospel through the lens of the culture rather than the culture through the lens of the gospel. That's powerful. Isn't that good? So who needs grace today? That's what I'm saying. Who in this room needs grace? All right. Who in this room is willing to become grace? Because grace is a person. Principle number four. That whosoever believes in him. Faith. The gospel ministry is about helping people navigate their journey of faith in Christ. I say navigate because one of the reasons why millennials say that they're hesitant to 
they think it's wrong just to share the gospel to try to convert somebody is because they think it's more about the transaction than the transformation. See, the, the, in this culture, there are now in America more people who are not connected to church and Christianity than there are that are. That doesn't, that's not a good sentence. But in, in the modern generation, you know, they grew up with at least the influence of the church. We are in the postmodern, even beyond that, to the post-Christian. We're talking about a generation that didn't even grow up with the influence of the church. So discipleship for, for millennials is a journey, not a transaction. They don't even know who God is, many of these kids. I work with a, a, an inner city after school program. We're working with one of the LECs here in Columbus. And my wife and I do the devotions with the kids. There's like 20 kids in that group. Now, they've heard the word Jesus, but none of those kids that started this journey with us knew anything about his story. Nothing about the story. What do you know about the story of Jesus? Anybody know anything about Jesus? What do you know about Christmas? Santa Claus. They don't know anything. So discipleship's a journey. We have to help them navigate the journey of faith. Are you following me? So people need to experience what it means to be authentically loved by God. And, and so one-time conversations are only a part of the journey, but they not, they're not the complete journey. You remember in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, how the father came to Jesus whose son was possessed by a demon and all that, and disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And, and Jesus says, you know, just believe. And the, and the father was like, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's where a lot of people are right now. Help me in my unbelief. So becoming gospel people is about becoming what we believe. Let me tell you a little story about my friend real quick. Uh, he'll let me use his name. And he has, a, he has an organization I'll tell you about at the end, but his name's Preston. Preston uh, was a Bible college student. He went to Sagu, Southwest Assembly of God University. And he was in his in between his junior year and his senior year doing his internship and a series of events took like the perfect storm in his life. He saw a lot of pain, he had a lot of questions and everyone he started to ask began to judge him. <laughs> so you got pain in your life, you're questioning your relationship and the existence of God and you got people that are spirit, and we're talking about pastors saying, brother, you need to, you need to take this to the Lord in prayer because you're in Bible college, how could you not how could you even question? And they're coming through at him like that. He literally became an atheist over that summer. An atheist. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. He's an intellect, so he doesn't like just go by emotion. Yet he wanted to finish his last year of college because he was at that university. He wrote to them. He said, look, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore, but I really want to finish my degree. Can I come back? And Sagu said, yeah, you can come back. And they had a professor contact him. And this professor called him up and said, look, here's the deal. All I ask is you let me walk the journey with you. I, I understand you have questions, you have challenges. What if you and I sat down and had many conversations this semester and we talked through it? You can come to your own conclusion, but let's talk through it. And that professor strategically took every single week, took time with Preston the, it, the whole year to walk him through his questions and help him understand. Well, he, he reignited his faith. He got saved. He became a church planter. Uh, he planted a church called, uh, and then he started, this, he started this, in, this national club called the Doubters Club, where, where an atheist and a Christian in friendship have dialogues with people who are questioning faith. I think that's a pretty valid ministry, to be honest with you. That kid gets a lot of criticism for what he does. He's on our national lead team for CMN, Church Multiplication. But Preston needed somebody to take him and help him navigate his journey of faith. So that's what's really important. If we're going to bring the gospel to the culture, we can't just preach the gospel. We've got to take people on the journey. One morning, I'm going to open it up for questions, so get ready with your questions. Shall not perish but have everlasting life, the, the principle of purpose. Gospel ministry is about helping people experience God's eternal purpose for their lives. There's more to this life than living and dying. Amen. Finding eternal purpose. That's what the gospel's about. 
couple weeks ago, this is just one example from my life, I was eating breakfast with a brother from the city here, and we were talking about doing um, gospel ministry in the city, and we were talking about maybe a church plant on, in the Whitehall area of Columbus, and we were talking through how that would look and how we would take people on a journey of discipleship and be good neighbors, with using that book, Neighborliness, be good neighbors to our neighborhood and making sure that nobody's left out. So we want international people involved in these groups and all the ethnicities. And, and, and we're talking through that. And, and uh, we're sitting at the table. And when we get done, the lady comes over. And I thought she wanted us to leave because we had talked a long time. She goes, can I excuse me? And I'm like, you, you need us to leave? She goes, no. Can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And she just starts crying in the restaurant. I'm like, sit down, honey. And her friend sat down next to uh, my friend and she starts pouring her heart out to me. And she says, you know, my boyfriend, I'm here because I just did the funeral for my boyfriend. He died of a drug overdose. I thought he was a Christian. I don't even know if I believe in God, but I hear you guys over here talking about Jesus like he's for real, for real. And I'm hurting. And I just feel like this was, I was meant to be here. That's what she said. I was meant to be here. That was a God moment. Right there in the restaurant, we got to pray with her. I don't know if she became a Christian at that moment, but she started a journey at that moment. She found purpose in grief. That's what God wants us to do. Help people find purpose. And that's something that you don't have to be a good preacher to do. You don't even have to be a good apologist to do that. You just got to be a lover of Jesus. And God can use you to do that. So... I'm going to conclude with this and then get ready with your questions. This is a quick extra credit for you right here. Three key missions terms. Learned this in a book by Ed Stetzer. Uh, uh, what's that book called? Planting Missional Churches, right? The word missional means joining Jesus on his mission by adopting the posture of a missionary to your community. So when you hear this word, we're going to be a missional church. That means that God wants you to be the missionary to your community, all right? I'm going to go to the second one. If you need me to put that back up, I will uh, later on here as we're asking questions. The term missions is the pursuit of sharing and showing the gospel to all corners of the earth. So that's why we call it world missions. Every community, every culture, every tribe, every nation. All right, so let's talk about a missional church is one that has defined their mission, is postured in their community as missionaries, and is committed to the mission of God at home and around the world. I'll leave that definition up. That's what God's called us to be. So, you know, doing ministry in the midst of a culture in crisis is really looking for where God's working and being Jesus. You got to get into the mess to do it, though. You have to get into the mess to do it.